as always, it's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, I do love coming and worshiping with you guys every morning, or, well, every morning, that'd be cool if we did that, but every Sunday morning. Um, and it's a privilege to uh, just kind of get to, to bring the Word of God to you. And uh, today, we are uh, going to be continuing in our Kingdom Culture series, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about unity and division. Um, we, we live in a culture that's very divided right now, don't we? Like, there are so many issues that seem contentious today, and it seems to me almost that, like, people are looking for a fight. Uh, I have a friend that, was, uh, that used to run a blog, and he, he doesn't do it as much anymore because he's just saying, like, every single thing that I write, it seems like somebody wants to fight about. Um, our country is divided on so many issues, right? Like, politically, uh, we're extremely divided uh, right now. There's uh, tons of different opinions about uh, policing and if it needs to be reformed or, you know, vaccines, uh, student loan forgiveness, whether or not you think that should happen, gender and sexuality, uh, abortion, gun control, free speech, like all these kind of things. They're these massive fault lines in our society that, that seem to be uh, tearing us apart from one another in a lot of ways. And I could probably make a much longer list, but you get the idea. Like, you live in this culture. Right? You might be able to shield yourself from some of the divisiveness if you do a good job of staying off the internet, uh, but on some level I think that you feel it. And we're divided, and, and this can bring out the worst in people. This is especially true when we let these divisive issues become so important that they form our identity. And they define the identity of other people as well, meaning that they're like the main thing that we think about for how, how we look at ourselves and how we look at others. This can create an environment of disrespect, uh, even hate. Now, even though our culture finds itself in this spot where we are so divided, I think that most of us, deep down, don't want it to be that way. Like, we know we'd be better off if we were more unified. I was reading an article from Pew Research uh, shortly uh, before, it came from shortly before the 2020 election, and uh, the author said this uh, about the division we're experiencing. He says, Americans both see this problem and want to address it. Overwhelming majorities of both Trump and Biden supporters, 86%, 89%, surveyed this fall said their preferred candidate, if elected, should focus on addressing the needs of all Americans, even if it means disappointing some of his supporters. So there's this idea of like, man, we, we know that there have to be things that, that should unite us, that we should care about together, uh, but for some reason, this idea of unity almost seems like uh, an elusive sentiment that we're unable to grasp. Seems more like a nice sentiment than an achievable reality, because there's just so many things that seem to get in the way of us coming together as people. Now, I want to tell you this morning, though, that I believe unity is possible. Uh, as a matter of fact, if your heart beats for unity, you want unity, you want to see that, uh, then I want to let you know like your heart's beating along with God. Like He is a God that wants unity for His people. And as I said uh, when I started, we're in this series right now called Kingdom Culture. And what we've been doing uh, this semester is just examining what is the culture of the kingdom of God like, and how does that compare to the culture that we currently find ourselves living in? And the reality is that the kingdom of God, uh, the, the culture of God's kingdom is a unified culture, okay? I, I read a, a passage from Isaiah earlier back when I started this sermon series, but I just want to revisit that real quick. This is a, uh, Isaiah eleven six to 7. It says, uh, the wolf will uh, dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. 
Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So we get this picture of, man, there's such unity and such harmony that even like lions and goats and sheep and that kind of thing, they're all just getting along together. Right? We see this in another part of Isaiah, speaking about the, the future, this, this kingdom that, that's already here but not yet here in its fullness. We see this in Isaiah 2, 2-4. to four. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Man, this is, this is the culture of God's kingdom, right? We, nation won't be rising up against nation anymore. We're not going to need spears. They're, they're going to be turned into swords or, or become plows, right? Spears become pruning hooks. This idea that uh, th- there is this kind of unity. And notice that that unity comes from everybody being united under the Lord. He's the judge that renders all the decisions. And so this is the unity that we want. It's the unity that's present in the kingdom of God. So what I want to do today is examine what is it that's standing in the way of the kind of unity that God wants to create in his kingdom, which is the kind of unity that he wants us to live in. So we're going to look at some of the major obstacles in our culture that block that path to unity, and then we'll look at what God's solution is to those obstacles. Uh, So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Um, God, we just thank you that you are our awesome God, that... um, you're just worthy to be seated above everything else, God. You, you are our king over everything. You're the creator of everything. Uh, Lord, we look forward to the day that nations are going to be streaming to you. That we'll never again learn war. That even lions and lambs can lie down together. Uh, but God, right now as we find ourselves in this culture of division, we pray that you'd help us to live as light in this world, Lord, as a people that are united under you and with each other. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And uh, we just pray that you would work in and through, through us this morning. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Yeah, so there are a ton of obstacles that we could talk about uh, that stop us as human beings, from being unified with one another. But I'm going to highlight six big ones that I see specifically in our culture. And uh, the first one is really just a lack of foundation. And, right? What, what I mean by this is, if you want to have unity, you have to have something that you're actually unified around. The definition for unity is the state of being united or joined as a whole, right? So what are we being joined together around? Uh, what what is the common identity of this group? Okay, I'll give you an example. A basketball team is oftentimes unified because they understand that they're a basketball team, right? Like each individual player sees how he fits in to that whole. They understand why that whole exists, and they understand what that whole group, that unified group, is trying to accomplish. 
They're unified around a common goal. They have a foundation, a common purpose, and that creates a common identity for the team. And this clear foundation, frankly, is why you may have felt greater unity on an athletic team that you've been a part of than you have in other spaces, possibly even the church. Now, it shouldn't be that way, right? Because the church actually has a mission and a common foundation, something to unify around, but unfortunately, the church oftentimes loses sight of its mission, and consequently, it loses both unity and effectiveness. But as human beings, we desire harmony with one another. But, but this is difficult, if not impossible, to achieve when there is no common understanding concerning what the purpose or goal of humanity is. Right? And, and so many of us are kind of just floating through life, not even knowing why we exist or what we're living for. Of course, it becomes very hard for us to unify because we have no foundation upon which we're living. We have no foundation upon which we can unify. And so there's a significant barrier. And oftentimes, it's addressed by uh, trying to, to find some identity, some smaller identity that we can uh, group around. And that leads us to the second barrier, which is misplaced identity. This is when you have poor attempts uh, that, that come from a found, uh, an attempt to build a foundation. All right? This is uh, the idea of trying to unify people around something smaller. Maybe it's your race. Maybe it's your gender. Uh, maybe it's your sexual orientation. Maybe it's uh, the country that you're from. Uh, maybe it's a, a certain interest or talent that you have. The, the issue is, with all of these things... First off, by nature, they, these identities are all exclusive, right? Like, uh, for example, if your identity is your race, then you can only have true, uh, true unity with people that are of that same race, and everyone else is going to be excluded from that. And since a person can't change their race, that means that that dividing line is always going to be there. You know, and second, these identities are too small to capture the essence of who we are as people. They aren't important enough to form your life around. Right? They don't have the power to set the course for everything that you do. And so thus the door is going to be open for disunity within this subgroup because people within the group are going to have divergent worldviews on more important things. So these misplaced identities aren't really going to help us uh, unify as human beings either. A third one that I think in our culture that stops us from being unified is the fear of being known. Right? Like being known is really terrifying if you live in a culture that doesn't have grace. And people in our culture can be one misstep away from being canceled or discarded for the mistakes that they make. And so often there's a pervasive fear about letting people see who you actually are. It's terrifying in a world without grace. And the thing is, there's a problem here because you can't actually have unity unless you have depth. The reason is because you won't actually know if you're truly accepted as part of the group when you still have skeletons that are hiding in your closet, right? You might think, well, yeah, I'm kind of accepted here, but if people really knew who I actually was, they wouldn't want to be around me. It's only when we're able to have actual depth with each other, to really know and be known that we can have a real unity and bond with each other. You know, I've been doing a lot of construction work around my house recently, and I've had to glue some things together. And uh, when you glue... You, you can't just kind of like set the stuff near each other, right? Like when you glue something, you want it to have a tight bond, you have to clamp it together and you have to leave that clamp on it for a while. And this is kind of the idea that, that I'm getting at where if we want to have real unity, strong bonds with each other, we have to be clamped together. There has to be a depth of connection there that goes beyond just what's on the surface. 
You know, one other barrier that I see beyond these first three is just busyness, right? There is something, uh, this is something that fights against depth, and consequently it stops us from being unified. We're so busy that we simply don't even have time to think about other people, right? It's not even maybe that we don't want to be unified with them, but we just don't really think about their needs. We don't think about what's good for other people or what they care about. And it's just because we don't have the time or energy because we have so many other things that are taking up our attention. We often prioritize tasks, money, or accomplishments over people. The fifth barrier I see is sin. So sin destroys unity for a couple major reasons. First off, sin by, by its very nature is harmful, right? Like you don't want to be around someone that harms you, do you? <laughs> Obviously not. Like it, it's our, it's our uh, natural inclination to say, if someone is harming me, I want to withdraw from them. And so when we sin, we're creating disunity because we're harming other people. When you gossip, you're harming people. When you're, insults, uh, when you're insulting people, you're harming them. When you're lying, uh, when you're behaving sexually immoral, uh, whenever, obviously things like violence, all this kind of stuff are hurting people. And naturally it makes us want to withdraw from one another. And the other thing that, about sin that makes it uh, so destructive to unity is that it's by nature selfish. It's very hard to have unity when everyone cares about themselves more than they care about the people around them. You know, take pride, for example. When you're prideful, you want to highlight your own greatness. Like, that's, that's what you're about. Um, well, that isn't going to create unity unless everyone around you is also interested in highlighting your greatness which they're probably not. <laughs> if anything, they're probably more interested in highlighting their own greatness, right? And so you see this, this idea where if we have a bunch of prideful people, it becomes very hard for us to actually be unified with each other. Say the same kind of thing about greed, right? When you want more for yourself at the expense of others, you're going to see how that creates disunity. Why would you want to be unified with someone that clearly cares about themselves more than they care about you? And then the sixth bar uh, barrier that I see in our culture to unity is opposition. Just the, this reality that there is an enemy that wants to create this unity. You know, as Christians, we have a spiritual worldview. We understand there's a spiritual world that's very real and impacts us, but that we can't see. And, and the Bible tells us, like, Satan is real, that, that he actually looks to try to sow discord and disunity. Even there, look at the very beginning. What did he do? He tried to sow disunity between God and his people, speaking lies into the ears of Adam and Eve. And so we see the same kind of thing happen with us today, where uh, Satan, what he's really good at being is a liar and an accuser, right? Constantly pointing out the bad things about people. And unfortunately, there's many that follow in his footsteps. People oftentimes can be accusers that point out every flaw and every reason that you have to reject a person, stirring up hatred and discord. You know, the Pharisees did this to Jesus. Like, Jesus longed to unify people and, and bring them together under himself, but they constantly wanted to accuse him and, and try and show how people should not unite under him. And so you see, there's a lot of obstacles that stand in our way and keep us from, from being unified as humans. And this is why the culture of our world is so divided. But that's not how God wants it to be. Remember what we read about in his kingdom, where it's a kingdom where the nations are coming together. They're beating their swords into plows. Lions are laying down with goats. 
you know, we, we see this heart that God has for unity in a prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before he was betrayed and crucified. And I want to read this. It's kind of a lengthy passage. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but it's in John chapter 17. And uh, th- this, these are some of the final things that Jesus was saying before he was betrayed. We have this prayer recorded. He says, I, praying for his disciples, verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, so we'll stop there. Jesus is pouring out his heart before the Father, right? Knowing that he's about to be betrayed, he's about to be crucified, he's about to be leaving this world, as he says there. But you see, one of these massive things that's on his heart is unity. It's a unity for for his believers, for for his disciples and everyone that would come to to be disciples after that. Now, I'm not going to break down every single bit of this prayer here. There's a lot going on. But because I'm preaching about unity today, I do want to point out all the things that Jesus is teaching us in this prayer about unity. And, And the first one we see is that he acknowledges the current state of disunity that he's living in. Right? Like there's a clear distinction that's drawn between the disciples and the world. Right? He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they're yours. He's, he, he, he sees there is a world, and then there's my disciples. There's, there's a dividing line that's here. There is disunity. He says he's not of the world, neither of his disciples. As a matter of fact, we see that there's a, a discord between these groups, even that the world hates the disciples. And so, yes, there's, there's a divide that's acknowledged there between people that are Christians and people that are not Christians. You know, the second thing he shows us about unity, though, is that the unity between him and his Father is perfect, right? Like he says, all I have is yours and and all you have is mine. There may be a lot of disunity in this world, but there's no disunity between the Father and the Son. And he prays, third, that this kind of unity would be the kind of unity that the disciples have amongst one another, Right? Look at that. In John 17, 11, he was praying that they may be one as we are one. 
Think about that. Like, look at the unity between the Father and the Son. Just, just complete, perfect harmony, unity of purpose and mission and mind. And he's saying, this is the kind of unity that I'm actually praying for my disciples to be able to have. That's convicting. And fourth, not, not only does he pray that for his disciples, but he prays that for you and I. Right? Look at how he goes on in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Right? Like the disciples went and, and preached this message to us about Jesus, and we've become believers. And, and the prayer there, he says in verse 21, that all of them may be one. Wow. Jesus cares a ton about the unity of his church. He says again there, that they may be one as we are one. And in verse 23 he says, so that they may be brought to complete unity. You see that this is something that's on the heart of Jesus. And so this is something he desires, uh, but, but how is this able to be made possible? Well, we see that the unity that he prays for is made possible because of the union with God. We see in verse 21, he talks about uh, us being in him, right? May they also be in us. In verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me. And you see, this is the, the reality is that Jesus allows us to be brought together with the Lord. And as, as people from all these different backgrounds and, and cultures and opinions and, and all these different kind of things come to know Jesus, and they're saved and they're given new life in Him. They're brought to Him. They're brought under the Lord. And that means we're all brought together to the same space. So you see how this unity with God starts to create unity amongst people. And finally, something else I would point out in this prayer is that, yes, we saw that there was this clear distinction between the world and between His disciples. But that doesn't mean that He doesn't care about the world. He does care about the world a lot. Right? Look at verse 18 where he says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The idea isn't just uh, let me take my favorite people and get them out of here. But rather, like, why are we being sent? Clearly, he still cares about the world that, that is disunified, right? That, that's separated from the believers and that's separated from him. Just he says, hey, I'm not of the world. There's a separation here. But he doesn't want that separation to stay. That's why he doesn't want the believers taken out of the world. We see several times that this unity that he wants is, is not just for their sake, but actually for the sake of the world. Look at what he said there in verse 21. I have it highlighted up there. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity is important for the witness that we have to the world. He says in verse 23 as well there, Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God desires the world to be reconciled to himself. He wants this perfect unity, and he wants all of his creation to be brought into this unity with him. And guys, this, this is the message of the gospel. You know, we talk about this message, the gospel here a lot, but really what I mean by that word gospel is just good news. And that's really the story of what the Bible is which is the fact that we have a good and loving God that created us, that, that made us in his image, but that, that we fell, like we rebelled against him. We sinned against him, and with that, that created brokenness, right? That, that created the distinction between us and God, where we have this God that's perfect and holy, and us that's not. Our sin is separating by nature. But God is a God of unity, 
And so what he did was, was Jesus literally, was, as it says there, sent into the world. What is that? That's God taking on flesh. Jesus, who's one with the Father, comes, takes on flesh. He walks on this earth. He lives a perfect life. And he dies on the cross. And he dies on the cross for a very real reason. To pay the penalty that you and I owe for our sins. Everything that we've done that deserves death, that separates us from God, he says, I'm going to pay the punishment for that. So that they can be brought back together with us. And this is why the Apostle Paul calls himself a messenger of reconciliation, of bringing back together. This is the essence of what the gospel is about. That we were far from God, but that he brings us into unity with him. I love this verse, uh, these verses in Colossians 2, 13 to 14. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That which was separating us from God has been taken out of the way. It was nailed to the cross. The dividing line between God and man is done away with. That's why actually when Jesus was, was crucified, there was this veil in the temple that was separating the holiest place that people couldn't go from the other places that people could go. And when Jesus was uh, crucified on the cross, that veil, that curtain, that separating line was torn from top to bottom. And, and in this, God is saying, I'm reconciling man to myself, bringing us together. And this paves the way for us not only to be unified with God, but to be unified with each other as well. Because, you know, we talked about all these different obstacles earlier. And what I want to let you see here is that the gospel addresses every single one of these obstacles. Every single one of them. We talked about the idea that uh, one of the reasons our culture is divided is because we have no foundation upon which to unify. Well, God is our foundation for unity. Right? He brings us together. He gives us a purpose. We're no longer aimless. We actually have a pursuit that binds us together, right? Look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We no longer find ourselves wandering around aimlessly, without purpose, not knowing what we were created for. We know exactly what we were created for. To love God and to love people. We have a foundation upon which we live and we understand that every single human being was created for this purpose. You know, second, we see that God gives us a unifying identity. Rather than us having to grasp at all of these kind of smaller, lesser things that, that are inherently are always going to be divided, whether that's trying to have an identity in our race or in our gender or in our, our job or anything like that, he says, no, I'm giving you a better identity. He transforms our minds to see who we actually are. What is that? People that are made in his image. Right? Look at this. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. You see, now we no longer have to look and say, well, yeah, I can be unified with this person because they look the same way as me, they have the same skin color as me, or, you know, they... Um, 
they have the same job as me or something like that. I say, no, that they were created by the same God that created me in the same image of that God that he loves. And with this, we, we, we start to have a much deeper identity for people. It's not something that has to be grasped at. It's not something that has to be earned. You are given your value simply by being created by the most valuable one. And you know, if you're a Christian... Not only are you created in the image of God, but you can even see, man, I've been adopted as a child of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so that's our identity. If you are a believer, you are a child of God. And even if you, if you are not a believer, you are God's creation. He loves you and he wants to adopt you into his family. We start to see people with a new dignity and a new worth that, that creates a unity that was not otherwise there. You know, third, we talked about one of the barriers to unity being a fear of being known. Well, God gives us the courage to be known, right? He knows exactly who we are, and he still loves us. Look at this. This is awesome. Psalm 103, 10 to 14. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. I love that. He's mindful that we are but dust. God knows every skeleton you have in your closet. He knows every bit of weakness that you have. He, he knows every insecurity, everything you're afraid, afraid about someone else knowing about you, and he loves you. Right? There's this, uh, this song called Indescribable, and uh, it's just talking about this indescribable greatness of God, but my favorite line in the song, it says, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Man, this is what the gospel teaches us, right? That gospel I told you about where we, we were separated from God by our sin. We were far off. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. But God took it upon himself, not because we earned it, but because he's good. He said, I'm going to come and save you. I'm going to die for your sins. You're going to be unified with me, not because you worked your way to me, not because you're good enough, but because I'm going to save you. The gospel is very real about our weakness, and it's very real about the love of God despite our weakness. And this gives us the courage to be known. The gospel frees us from feeling like we're people that have to hide things. It can be brought to the light. And you know, the grace that God gives us creates a community of people that learn to give grace in the same way. It becomes a place that's safe to be known. And you know that you're loved not because of your perfection, but rather because you are created and loved by the perfect one. Again, to quote Paul from 2 Corinthians, which we preached in the last semester, he said, uh, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Basically, what Paul is saying, we, we don't look at the flesh anymore. Like we, we don't look at the kind of things that other people look at, that we used to look at for when we're judging people or trying to think if they're valuable or anything like that. We don't look at people that way anymore. God starts to transform the way that we see each other. It gives us the freedom to be known in depth. You know, God also gives us a unifying priority. We talked about busyness. 
being a barrier that gets in the way of unity. Well, one of the reasons we're so busy, sometimes we don't actually know what's most important to invest in. There are so many different things that can take your time and energy in this world. But when you become a Christian, you're given new life, God helps reorient your priorities. It becomes clear for you to know what's actually most important. It's simple. I preached on this a few weeks ago, but it's this idea of just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. Everything that you do, your life, it's supposed to come back to these things. Now, the cool thing is, there's a lot of variety in how we can do that. There's a lot of freedom in that the Lord's given us in how we can live and the things we can pursue. But ultimately, what matters is those two things. It should come back to that. Everything. All the law and the prophets hang on it, he said. Come back to loving God, to loving people. You know, something else that the gospel does is that it frees us uh, from the sin that divides. You see, we've already talked about how the gospel unites us with God, right? Like, we, we earned death for our sin. That's what Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are freed from the consequences of our sin, the eternal consequences of our sin, because of the gospel, which divided us from, from man and God. But also, the gospel frees us not only from the consequences of our sin, but from our slavery to it. You know, right before that verse there, Romans 6.23, I want to read the preceding verses here. It says, uh, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. You realize we we are not slaves to sin anymore. There was a time where, yeah, we we were pretty much powerless to actually even know what the right thing was or how to do it. But but if Jesus has has opened your eyes, he's saved you, the Holy Spirit has come into you, then then you start to learn what's actually good and what's actually evil. And not only that, but you're empowered to walk in what is right. You don't have to continue to choose to sin. He gives us his Holy Spirit, which, which produces good fruit in us. Righteousness, right? Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You see, God delivers us from the consequences of our sin, but he also wants to empower us to live in righteousness. Now, I'm not preaching the idea that, okay, God saves you and then you have to work the rest of your way to be perfect from there. What I am saying is you are saved purely by the grace of God. Like, it is his grace that saves you. But in that, like, he wants to save you into life. And so are there times that we're still going to be tempted and and that you're probably going to stumble and struggle? Yes, like, there's still sins that I struggle with in my life. But, But what I refuse to believe is that I have to continue submitting to those things. Because we have a God that's delivered me from freedom. He's delivered me from slavery to sin. He's given me freedom. He says he gives me a way out. And so we have a God that's put his Holy Spirit in us. He's producing good fruit in us. And, and yes, that's all started. And I'm, I'm moving more in righteousness. And, and I'm, not, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. Just like that kingdom that God, that, that kingdom we've been talking about, right? It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. 
Well, that, that's kind of what God's doing in us too, right? Like he saves us and he starts to sanctify us. He makes us more like him. There's, there's big changes that happen, but we're not yet fully made perfect. That's going to happen at the end time when that new kingdom comes in. But the, the good news is like, yes, we still battle the flesh here, but God gives us the power to be able to say no. And that's encouraging to me. And finally, we see that God helps us to love our enemies that work to divide. We talked about how there's opposition to unity sometimes. Of course, we talked about Satan. Uh, well, Satan is going to get what's coming to him. We already know his outcome. He's, he's going to be eternally punished. He's not going to be able to, to create problems in the new heavens and new earth. But also, there are people that stir up division and hatred and problems, right? And, and one of the things that can happen is that when someone is being mean to you or someone is doing evil things to you, saying terrible things to, to you, that, that is already disunifying in and of itself, right? But it's able to multiply its effect if you choose to reciprocate that kind of action. And what Jesus teaches us to do is the exact opposite. There may be people that are going to do those things, but he teaches us not to reciprocate that kind of action. But rather, when someone tries to be disunifying, someone tries to hate us, someone tries to hurt us, that we choose, no, we're going to love you back. We're not going to let that disunity continue to be multiplied. Look at Matthew 5, 43 to 45. It says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We can't control the actions of other people. We can't control people that may want to try to cause disunity and problems. But we can control how we react to them. And we need to be people that choose, hey, we want that unity that God wants. We want to love. Now that doesn't mean that we have to ignore sin, right? Like Jesus in his, in his prayer confronted that. He, he was like, it's straight up. I'm not of the world, neither are my disciples. We can see that there's a real distinction there, and we can own that. But we can't let that distinction be something that makes us kind of see the other person as my enemy. But rather, it's got to be like, man, we want to come together under God. I was sent into this world for a reason. There's a reason that Jesus prayed that his disciples wouldn't just be brought out of the world, but rather that they would be protected in it. And so may we be agents of unity, just like Jesus, right? Jesus was sent in the world. What did he do? He brought about unity between us and God, and he teaches us to love one another and create this unity. He's ushered in the kingdom of God, and we are now living in that kingdom that's, that's been ushered in partially, but is just not yet fully here. And so the same thing we've been talking about every week, what we want to do is live as people that, that live with the values of that, that kingdom of God right now, as we're waiting on it to come in our fullness, in its fullness. So, you know, for as long as sin's been in the world, we humans have been tempted to divide against each other. Um, but God wants us to be unified as his creation. He's working towards unity. His kingdom is one of unity under his rule. And that's the only way we're going to be able to achieve it, right? He's the only king that can hold all of this together. And so may we no longer be people who divide over all sorts of minor differences. As Christians, may we see that we are the one church. Let's, let's kill our pride that divides. 
Let's stop trying to create our own kingdoms and be people that submit to our one king. And that goes uh, for, for when we're talking about unity, man, that, that's within here is H2O. Like that's a great place to start. That we would really love one another well. That we'd lay down our pride. That we'd sacrifice for each other. But man, that, that goes beyond that too. Like we're part of something much bigger. We are one church. May we be people that, that just never do any of that silly stuff like comparing ourselves to other churches or ministries or that kind of thing. That, that stuff all just shows discord and disunity, right? Like if there's something unhealthy going on somewhere, that's okay to call that out and try to, try to address that. Um, that's, not, that's not disunity. Matter of fact, when you address sin, that helps protect unity. But I think a lot of the time we let our pride uh, stir up problems that really shouldn't be there. And so may we be unified as God's one global church. And as we live in this world, like may we be people that are always seeking to try and help unify people under the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you uh, that you are a God who loves and a God who unifies. Um, I thank you that you're the only king that is actually able to hold everything together. God, so many of us have different opinions about uh, how we would, would shape the world in our image, but um, they fall so short of what you can do, God. And so I pray that you'd help us to be humble people, that lay down our pride, that look to you. God, I pray that you'd help us to repent of... Um, Anything that, that we might need to repent of that's causing disunity, whether that's jealousy or bitterness or uh, pride or greed or some sort of sin like that that we're holding on to. Or, God, maybe if we're just struggling with the courage to actually be known, I pray that you'd help us to be people that, that take steps towards depth. God, if we've been just kind of wandering aimlessly with, with no foundation or, or placing our identity in something else that, that's insufficient, I pray that you'd help us to discard that and and take on the identity that you've given us. Lord, uh, we thank you that you love us and we want to glorify you. We know that you're a good king. Um, and so may the praises of our lips be honoring to you and help us to honor you with our lives as we go forth from here today. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.